So open your Bibles now to John 15. We're down at verse 12. Excuse me, down at verse 18. Verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ has only a few hours left before he's going to be arrested. Before he's going to be illegally tried. And before he's going to be illegally crucified. And he knows he only has a few hours left. What would you do, or what would you say to your family, or to your closest friends, if you knew you only had a few hours left before you are going to die? Well, what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing at this time is he's taking these 11 faithful, specially chosen disciples that he's kept with him all this time. He's taken them to a special place. They have completed the last supper, I mean the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. And what he's doing is he's using these few precious minutes that he has left to teach them about the foundational understanding of the Trinity. Now think about that. That's what he's using his time for. Because it's so important about his relationship to the Father, about his relationship to the Holy Spirit. He's given them a theology lesson. He only has a few hours with them. He knows how hard-headed they are. He, he knows how self-centered they are. And yet he's teaching them this. He's teaching them that he's going away, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to send another helper, another helper just like him, the Holy Spirit. He teaches them that even though he's going away, he's going to come back. And when he comes back for them, he's going to take them to his father's house. And they know where that is. He teaches them that they have to abide in him and his love. Or they have to stay plugged in to him and his love. And the way that they will stay plugged in to him and to his love is to treasure and do what he commands them to do. He teaches them finally to love one another. Three times in that 15 to 20 minutes between chapter 13 where they begin the, the Lord's Supper and now where we are. He tells them three times to love one another. Hmm. He tells them three times and he commands them to love one another. A new commandment I give to you. Verse 12 he says, this is my commandment. Verse 17 he says, this I command you. He has to command them because they don't love one another. They're selfish, self-possessed. All they have in mind for themselves is how can I get ahead? What great position can I have in the government when Jesus Christ is declared king? I mean, because they, they keep talking about who's going to be greatest. Who's going to be greatest? And he teaches them, commands them, to love one another as he loves them. Man, what a bar. And if you read chapter 13 down to verse 17 here in chapter 15, it's amazing how much time he spends in those 15 to 20 minutes talking about love. About loving him. About the Father's love for them. His love for them. Their love for one another. And now as they're wrapping up I put it like this, they're wrapping up dinner after the first Lord's Supper. He's already said, come, let us arise and go from this place. But you know how hard it is to get folks from the fellowship room into the auditorium at our church for the second service. And you have people milling around, you have people grabbing their clothes, you've got people cleaning up. And so it's going to take him a while to get them out of there. And while they're doing that, he continues to teach them what they must know. Before he gives himself up, he gives himself up as a sacrifice for their sins and for ours. And there's going to be a radical shift in what he's teaching and what we look at tonight. So look at verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Pray with me, please. Hmm. This isn't good news, Father. But yet, we need to hear it. Our Lord taught his eleven this because they needed to hear it. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes tonight to what you're teaching us out of this warning that the world hates us. Not to go away dreary, but to go away prepared and ready to serve you. We ask this for our sake in Christ's name. Amen. After so much talk about love, Jesus loving us, the Father loving us, us loving him, us loving one another, there's this pause between verses 17 and 18. And Jesus begins to warn them that the world hates him and them. Now they already know that the world hates the Lord Jesus. They're seeing that almost every day, especially now that they're in Jerusalem. And the point is this. Jesus is saying, the world hates me. The world hates my Father. And the world will hate you. Now what does Jesus mean by the world? I mean, look at there in verse 18. If the world hates you, the three primary ways that the word world is used in the scriptures is, first of all, it talks about the planet Earth. This is the world. Uh, Psalm 24, 1. Uh, the earth is the Lord and everything that's in it, the world and all those who dwell on it. So, talking about the planet Earth. He's not talking about the planet Earth here. Another way of using the word world is talk about the people that are living on the earth. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's to whosoever's living on the planet that John 3.16 is talking about. It's to people. And then here, the way the Lord Jesus is using the word world, it's fallen lost humanity that's hostile to God in all that it thinks and all that it wants in all that it does. I borrow a, a term from a cultic group that at least got one thing right. And that's their definition of the word world. They call it this present evil system. That's, that's what it is. It's this present evil system among human beings that's influenced by and often dominated by demonic activity... And that's ruled by Satan, as 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him, the God of this world. That the whole evil system is orchestrated by Satan and his demons, and is ruled by Satan and his demons, whether they realize it or not. And they worship Satan, whether they realize it or not. Ephesians 2, 1-3 talks about the world there. It says, you were dead in trespasses 
you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's the world. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. That's the world. That describes the world. The world, though, even though it's dominated by Satan, even though it's, in, and I'm going to use a word, $5 word I'll use later, implacably hostile to God, is invariably religious. The world is always religious. It worships gods of its own imaginations, like the Hindu gods, or like the animism gods, uh, primitive cultures around the world. They'll worship spirits, the spirits of the rocks, the spirits of the sky, the spirit of the stream, the spirits of the ground. That's called animistic religion. Uh, they're gods of their own imagination. They look at a thunderstorm and they say, well, there must be a spirit that causes that thunderstorm. So they make up some god. The old pagan gods, whether it's Thor and Odin or whether it's Zeus and Hera, they were all objects of imagination. Or they worship the gods that are actually deceiving demons. Like Baal, or as many people call him Baal in the Old Testament, the storm god. Or Molech and Milcom who as deceiving demons required those who worshipped them to offer up their children as sacrifices, burnt offerings to them. Or the deceiving demon of Islam, which is working today. Or they worshipped the state as a god. All the isms, you know, fascism, Nazism, Communism, socialism, where the state is the God and the state is the one that you must obey and the state is the one that provides everything for you. And you look to the state whenever you have a problem. Many people worship the state. Or they just worship themselves. And that's the predominant religion in America. People worship themselves. I call it me-ism. It's all about me uh, it's okay if I do something good for my family, if I do something good for someone else, but it better be good for me. Hmm. And since Satan is the God of this world, and since the world, whether it realizes it or not, is actually serving him, he's content to let them worship anybody that they want or anything they want to worship, as long as they don't worship the true and living God. The, the God of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God of the Bible. And yet, the world often claims to worship God, while it's actually rejecting God. Judaism, and we're going to get into that tonight. Islam, the Roman Catholic system, and much of what is called today evangelicalism, claims to worship God, but they're actually rejecting him and worshiping a God of their own imaginations. But here, we're talking about the world. Who is the world that the Lord Jesus is talking about here? Here, he's talking especially, but not exclusively, about Judaism. About especially the elite in Judaism. As Hunter said today, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the high priest, and all of those who followed them. The ones who have been obviously, continually, bloodthirsty, hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. So, when he says, if the world hates you... Tonight be thinking primarily, even though I'm going to shift back and forth between the Jews. Remember, that's what John calls the Jews. It's the leaders of Judaism are the ones he calls the Jews. Not all the Jewish people, but the leaders. And that whole system of Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, that, that clique, if you will. That's who the Lord Jesus is specifically talking about when he says the world here. But not exclusively because he's still talking about everything that's hostile to God. But try to keep that in mind and I'll try to keep that in front of us this evening. He says, 
if the world hates you, and the construct there is if the world hates you and it does, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, again, we have to come back and, and ask, what does it mean by hate? There are some well-meaning but wrong people who want to say that God really doesn't hate. Because they, they look at what hate means and it is so repulsive to them. To hate means to have, and I'm going to use that $5 word again, implacable antagonism. There is no way that anything or anyone is going to turn you from being hostile to something or to someone. But if you go to the book of Proverbs, and I think it's chapter 19 in Proverbs, you see that God there says he hates seven different things. He hates them. Hands that shed innocent blood. Feet that are swift to running to evil. Uh, lips that speak lies. These are things that, that he hates. He has an implacable hostility towards sin. Because sin is absolutely contrary to him. And sin destroys those that he loves. So we're looking here. If the world hates you. If they have this vicious hostility toward you. Even to the point. They wish you would disappear or they wish you'd be killed. Know that it hated me before it hates you. And now we see one reason why the Lord Jesus Christ has been stressing in chapter 13, 14, and 15 that we need to love one another. It's because the world hates us. It hates us. Well, why does the world hate Jesus? In my humble and most accurate opinion, I think the answer to that is because Jesus demands absolute allegiance. And the world demands absolute allegiance. It's interesting, especially the world, and when you consider the world in a religious context. Whenever a Muslim comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or a Hindu comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or a Roman Catholic comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or a Mormon comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to see how their family just turns on them like a pack of dogs and want to rip them apart. How they just cut them out altogether. And there's this ice wall between the person who's come to Christ and those that they love the most. They, because the world demands absolute allegiance you step away from us you stop following us you stop obeying us you stop conforming to us and we'll turn on you the Lord Jesus Christ demands absolute allegiance remember we're to call him as Lord we come to him as Lord and because the Lord Jesus requires absolute allegiance total allegiance and the world requires total allegiance then the world hates him because he's in competition with the world. It's really not much competition. I mean, God versus the creation. But you see why the world hates him. Well, why does the world hate us? Look at verses 19 through 21. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. See, that's why the world hates us is because we're his we were part of the world we, we once were conformed to the world we once had the same allegiance as the world we once had the same attitudes as the world we once had the same goals as the world we were loyal to the world and then he chose us out of the world and now we have a new loyalty and the loyalty is to him as Lord. See, the world is no longer our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And therefore the world hates us. It's because we're his. When he says there in verse 19, if you were of the world, the construct there means if you were of the world and you're not, the world would love its own. 
Yeah, the world supports it, it, it. And the word love there, by the way, is not agape. It's phileo, which is the idea of loving as a friend. The way friends love. And as long as you're loyal to the world, and as long as you're part of the world, then the world is your friend. The world will encourage you. The world will support you. The world will provide for you. But because I... But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Hmm. You no longer run with the pack, but now you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. You no longer have that arrogant, self-righteous, self-justifying attitude that you had when you were part of the world. It's amazing to me. Some of the people that, I, that I've talked to, especially when I was working for a living, and they would be perverts. They would be involved in perverted sexual activity. And we'd be talking about that, and then they'd say, now don't judge me. And I'm thinking, that doesn't work. <laughs> You've already judged yourself. If you hadn't judged yourself, you wouldn't say, don't judge me. It's that self-justifying thing. You would, they would never say, now don't judge a murderer because he's a murderer. And obviously you're going to judge him and you're going to deal with him as a murderer. But this idea of don't judge me for what I do, this self-justifying in the face of obvious sin. We once had that attitude. We once had that, that me-centered life and mindset. But now we've been plucked out of that. We've been taken out of that. We've, Jesus came along and said, among all you sinners, I choose you. And took us out. And he says down there, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Then look at verse 20. He explains that a little bit more. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. He said that back in chapter 13, verse 16. You don't treat the slave better than you treat the slave's master. For instance, if we were still living, if we still had slaves today, and a slave came and wanted to buy something out of your store, then you wouldn't treat him better than you would have treated his master if his master came to buy something out of your store. And that's just the way things work. So what he's saying here, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're not going to treat you better than they treated me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Hmm. Hmm. If they persecuted me, the word persecute means to chase away. It means to chase down. If, if they tried to drive me out or even tried to kill me, they're going to try to drive you away. They'll try to kill you. But if they kept my word as the master, they'll keep yours also. And that actually happened. You remember on the day of Pentecost, how many people were in the upper room? 120. Not 11. Not just the 11 apostles, but there were 120. There were 120 people, or at least, here's my math, 109 more people than the apostles who kept his word, who treasured it, who listened to it, who did it. And that happened with the apostles as well. In Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul's talking to the Galatians, and he says, Remember when I came to you and I, I had this terrible sickness? And when I preached Christ to you, you didn't despise me even though I was sick. You received me as if I was an angel of God. You received me even as Christ Jesus himself. They treasured his word. They kept his word. They listened to it. Jesus says, however they treated me is how they're going to treat you. So look forward to it that way. And then in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. They're going to treat you the same way they treated me for my name's sake. What that means is because you're mine. 
since you have my name on you that's the reason they're going to treat you like they treated me the world hates me and persecutes me and it would kill me if it would or if it could and by the way it is going to kill him the next day it's going to, it hates me it persecutes me it's going to kill me because of what I say what did, did Jesus say that, that infuriated them so much? He said he was from the Father. <laughs> he said the Father sent me. Uh, the God of Abraham. Uh, the God that you claim to worship. He sent me. That he sent me to save you from your sins. To save you from your sins by you trusting in me as your Lord. What Jesus said is, I'm one with the Father. I and the Father are one. And they hated him for that. And they persecuted him for that. And he says, they hated me and they persecuted me because they don't know the one who sent me. Wait a minute. These are Jews. These are priests. These are Pharisees. These are students of the law. What do you mean they don't know God? They don't know his father. Well, they don't. The word know there means to have an experiential knowledge. It's more than just recognizing facts. See, they could read the the Torah. They could read the prophets. They, They could read their Bible and learn a lot of things about God. But they still didn't know him. We have that today. There are liberal theologians that are brilliant when it comes to explaining the text or explaining words in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, but they don't know God. It's all just academic to them. It's just facts to them. And that's the way it was with most of these Pharisees, with almost all the priests and the Sadducees, with the crowd that followed after him. They knew the facts about God. It's like a lot of Baptists today. you got a lot of Baptists that were raised up as children in church. And as children, they learned the Bible stories. They learned all the Bible stories that, that you know. But it was just Bible stories. And to them, it was true, but it's just facts. But they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're the leaders of the religion. You're the one to whom God gave his law. You're the one to whom God gave his his promises. And you don't even know him. He says, all these things they will do to you because you belong to me. And they do all these things to me because of what I say. And they hate me because they don't know the one who sent me, which is my father. And the world's going to hate and persecute you. Because you love me. And you're loyal to me. And you keep my commandments. And after they've killed me, there's nothing more that they're going to be able to do to me. But you'll do the works that I do. And even greater works than these you will do, he said in chapter 14. And you're going to do it in my name. You're going to preach a full and final salvation from sin in my name. And you're going to keep on pointing to me, people to me. And you'll keep pointing them to me as the only and full sufficient Savior for men. And the world, and in this case, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious elite of Israel will hate you for my name's sake. And since they can't persecute me anymore, they're going to persecute you. Then look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And this stumbles us up. Because they said, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. You you mean that they would be sinless? That they wouldn't be sinners? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of the sin of refusing and rejecting God's perfect, full, and final revelation of himself to them in me. God has come to them in person. God has come to them in person and has taught them face to face. God has become one of us and taught them the truth. He's taught them about themselves. That they're sinners in spite of all their religious activity. He's taught them about salvation. That it's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This man who's standing right there talking to you. And if God had not come to them in the person of the Lord Jesus and had not told them all these things, they would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting him. Are you with me? But because he has come and spoken to them face to face, and he's spoken clearly to them, so clearly that thousands of people have understood what he said, and thousands of people came with him on the triumphal entry and were crying out to him, Save us! They have no excuse for their sin of contemptuously rejecting him for who he is. And then in verse 23, they've not only rejected him, they've hated him. And he says, he who hates me hates my father also. What do you mean? He's saying that to hate me is to hate the one that I am one with. Remember, I and the Father are one. You, you can't separate me from the Father. Uh, this is where I, we're talking about the, the foundations of the understanding of the Trinity, of who God is. He's teaching them these sort of things. Of course, they're not getting it right now. It's just going right over their heads. But he's saying, to hate me You necessarily hate the Father who is one with me. We are inseparable. The Jewish Shema, the confession of faith, the basic confession of faith of the Jew. I forget how many times a day a good Jew would recite this. But the Shema says this in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. What they understood that to mean was there's no other God but Yahweh. All the other so-called gods are false gods. But what it also means is God is one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. I and my Father are one. To hate the Lord Jesus Christ is to hate the very God that they claimed to worship. Is to hate God the Father. <laughs> then he says in verse 24, explaining a little bit further about what it, that they're hating the Father as well. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, They would not have sin. They they wouldn't be guilty of the sin of rejecting the very God that they claim to worship. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. The works that Jesus is talking about here in verse 24, that's the miracles he performed. The healings and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. These were, were works that were signs that proved he was who he claimed to be. and That proved he could do what he claimed to do. That he could forgive sins. That he really was the son of God. Because he was doing things that only God could do. It proved that he really is God incarnate. 
Remember back in chapter 8? When the, the Pharisees have got him cornered in the temple. And they figure, we got him now. We're going to trip him, trip him up now. And he says, your father Abraham saw my day. He was glad in it. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming. And everybody knew that what he was claiming because they took up rocks to kill him. They were going to uh, kill him for blasphemy. So the signs proved that what he said was true. Because who was performing these signs? And you say, well, Harry, that's stupid. Jesus was performing these signs. Mm, really? Jesus by himself? Look back at chapter 14. Look at verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak for myself. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. So who's doing these miracles? Well, Jesus is doing the miracles and the Father in him is doing these miracles. Vindicating his sons. So the Jews have not only heard what he spoke to them about himself, but they've seen the miracles that only God could do. Go back to chapter 9. This, I love this. Chapter 9, verse 32. Remember we have the man that was born blind. He was at, at the temple right after the Jews wanted to stone Jesus because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they're walking out of the temple. And his disciples see this man who was born blind. And they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? And we go through that whole episode there. And after Jesus rest- restores his sight, then the Pharisees are trying to get him to claim that it was someone other or something other than Jesus that restored his sight to him. And look down at verse 32. Well, look at verse 31. He said, this is the Pharisee speaking. We know that God does not listen to sinners. If anyone, uh, no, this is the man speaking because the Pharisees have accused Jesus of being a sinner. And the man who's just had his sight restored says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. And it's so flabbergasted the Pharisees that they cast him out of the temple. They cast him out of the synagogue. They made him a renegade. But he got it. He did what only God could do. And that no man had ever done, no servant of God had ever done a miracle like this before. So who's doing the miracles? It's the Lord Jesus and it's the Father in him vindicating the Lord Jesus as who he says he is. The Son of God and God the Son. And the Jews have not only heard what he spoke, they've not only seen what he's done, the things that only God could do, but they still hate him. And therefore, it's because it's the Father that's doing it, and because the Father is one with him, they hate the Father as well. The Jews, the very people that claim that they're worshiping the Father, end up hating him. Hmm. And verse 25 shows us that the Jews' hatred... Now, I'm not talking about the Jewish nation. I have to always come back, especially in these days, with the hideous things that are going on in uh, Palestine and Israel right now. We're not talking about all the Jews. We're talking about the Jewish leaders, the elites, the one who rejected Jesus, and those who followed them. Verse 25. But this happened to fulfill the word that was written in their law. Their law. So this is how we know that primarily, but not exclusively, we're talking about the Jewish leaders here. They hated me without a cause. This hatred is really unreasonable. What's Jesus done To provoke such hatred. He told him the truth. And the father vindicated that he was speaking the truth. By working all these miracles through him. And even though their hatred is unreasonable. It fulfills a prophecy. 
It says they hated me without a cause. That's Psalm 69, 4. It's a prophecy about Messiah. And again, it just shows us this another glorious display that God is absolutely sovereignly in control of everything. It's even the death of his son. They hated me without a cause. They should rejoice in me. They should love me. They should receive me. But yet, there's this irrational hatred on their part. Hmm. So, we go through this. All this about hate, which we don't like listening to. We'd rather hear about loving one another. So what does it say to us? We, we ended up as, like Eric says, what's the so what? Well, the so what is this. Firstly, there's only one way to be reconciled to God. The reason I have to say that is because there are some people, not as many as there used to be, but there's still some in certain branches of what is called evangelical Christianity that if you pin them to the wall they actually believe that there's two ways to be saved if Gentiles believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you can be saved but a Jew can be saved by believing in the God of Abraham and Moses without believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that a Jew can be saved by believing the Old Testament and trusting the God of Abraham and Moses but Jesus says that doesn't work that's not true because John 14 6 makes that plain I am the way the truth the life no man comes to the father but by me so that the only way a Jew or a Gentile can be saved is by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and besides boys and girls the Lord Jesus Christ is the God of Abraham and Moses. He is the God who appeared to Abraham with two angels and told him he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and told him that he was going to come back in a year and Sarah was going to have a son. He is the God who came down on Mount Sinai and was enthroned on Mount Sinai and gave the law to his people. Hmm. Any Jew who rejects Jesus as Yahweh, as the God of Abraham and Moses, rejects the very God of Abraham and Moses, and is lost under the wrath of the very God he claims to worship. But secondly, now we know why the rulers of this world hate us. It's because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Why the political and educational elites in America see us as a positive danger that has to be countered and controlled. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ and they therefore hate us, his people. That's why Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo and the other governors jumped on the opportunity to shut down the churches and kept the churches shut when Costco was wide open. Because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how much they say they worship him or follow him, they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore they hate us because we're his people. It's why the insanity of wokeism is embraced so enthusiastically by the business world, by the educational world, by the governmental world, by the military of all places. I mean, it's insane. But the reason they embraced it is because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hate us because we're his. That's why those who have received Christ as Lord in Muslim lands and Hindu lands, those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ out of a false religion background like Roman Catholicism or Mormonism or something like that, why they're rejected, why they're persecuted, and why in some cases, especially among the Hindus and the Muslims, they're even killed because they have come out of the world religion that they were in. They've been chosen out of that religion, and their allegiance is now totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world won't accept it, and the world won't put up with it, and the world is going to persecute them the world is going to try to make them disappear. And if they won't disappear, well, kill them. Because 
The Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us out of the world to be his alone. That's why every demonic world religion hates him and hates us who belong to him. So, here's the cheerful part. Expect the world to hate you. Especially lost religious people. And sometimes they're sitting in evangelical churches. You tell them the truth. Well, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're somewhat moral, but you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's obvious that you don't know. You even with your own mouth have said, well, I have, you know, but I'm a good person. And then you try to explain to them how they can come to faith in Christ and, and how they can be reconciled to God and they hate you for that. Why? It's, they hate us without a cause when we love them enough to tell them the truth. Hmm. But even when the world hates you and their hatred is going to become more and more blatant and explicit as we go along. Because Satan feels his muscles here in the United States. He's got Russia. You say, well, they have the Orthodox Church. That's no church. He's got Communist China. He's got the Muslim world. He has the Hindu world. He has Europe, which is in the darkest, blackest spiritual condition that it probably has ever been in since World War II. He has them. And now he looks at the United States and he says, "Mm -hmm. now I'm going to wrap this up. Watch this. While he's doing that, cherish the love that we have for one another. Cherish your brothers and sisters. Because when the world comes crashing down on our heads, it's our brothers and sisters that are going to be the ones to love us, to hold us up, and to encourage us. I was shocked when... uh, I applied for a job at Walmart. You know, you move back to Richmond County, North Carolina, you're 57 years old. You're qualified to do nothing. If you're a 57-year-old man in Richmond County, especially if you say, and I had a, a couple of job offers, but each one of them said, but you're going to have to worship, you have to work uh, several Sundays every month. How many? Several. I mean, there's only four, you know. And I said, I'm sorry, uh, I need to worship more than I need this job. And they said, well, that's the poison pill right there. So I went to work for Walmart, 7.25 an hour, 57-year-old man, coming down from Massachusetts, but I need a job. You know, 7.25 an hour is a whole lot better than zip an hour. And I was sitting there with Jackie, and she was interviewing me. I was going, being interviewed to be a cart pusher, starting out as a cart pusher at the very bottom of the totem pole. And she said, yeah, I mean, you know, you're strong, you're healthy, and, <laughs> you know, you've, you've worked all your life. You're not afraid of work. So, yeah, uh, can you start tomorrow? And I said, well, there's just one thing. I don't work on Sundays. He said, well, you know, the weekends are our busiest time. And I said, which is a lie. But she said, the, we- the weekend was our- is our busiest time. I said, yeah, but I don't work on Sundays. I-, I need to worship. I need to worship. I didn't tell her this, but if you knew my heart, you would know how much I need to worship. You know? And she thought for a second. I figured, okay, here's another one. I can't even get a job pushing carts at Walmart. But she thought for a second and she said, okay. And she entered into the computer, scheduled me for any time other than Sundays. And I never had to work a Sunday. The eight years that I did my time, I, did, I paid my debt to society working at Walmart. You know. But when that happens, when it comes down and they say, you're going to have to do this. You can't have your Bible in your desk at, at work. You can't say anything about God or about Christ at work. This is a religion-free zone. 
and you slip up and you talk to somebody or you invite somebody to worship or, or you're talking to somebody about Christ and they say one more time and you're fired it's going to have to be your brothers and sisters are going to have to come along and build you up and hold you up and pray for you at that time hmm. but here's my last word in addition to cherishing the love of our brothers and sisters I want us to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ promised us right at the beginning of his ministry. It's in Matthew chapter 5, it's verses 11 and 12. And listen to this. He says, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. When they persecute you, and they will, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Because the worst thing that can happen is you're going to die. And once you're dead, they can't do anything else to you. And besides, once you're dead, you're going to be in my father's house. And great is your reward in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't like hearing about hate. We don't like hearing especially about how much the world hates us. But if they do, it's only because we're yours. We're yours, Lord Jesus. We belong to you. And so therefore, forewarned is forearmed. And remind us always that if we suffer for your namesake, if we take verbal abuse for your namesake, if we're put on call for your namesake, great is our reward in heaven. Praise you that even in persecution, whatever flavor it takes, you are sovereign. And you're working all things together for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand with me please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we're dismissed. <laughs>